Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. High atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That is the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, June the 9th, 2011. Actually, it's Memorial Day if you want to know the truth, and I'm in the office cutting this show early. But for you, it is Thursday, June the 9th, 2011, and I am getting ready to go on vacation. So this is one of the shows kicking off an interview blitz series that I'm doing while I'm away for you. Today we have the amazing, the interesting, the incredible Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants on with you. And if you think it's going to be the same interview we had with him last time, you are wrong. We are going to talk about all kinds of interesting stuff. Some serious doses of reality, the potential to have Mumbai-style attacks in the United States and what we need to be doing about it. Uh, learning how to run any gun you get your hands on at any time on a moment's notice and all kinds of other cool stuff. And we're going to get real because that's what Fortress Defense Consultants do. They get you real. We're even going to talk about something I talked about a couple weeks ago. Training with Airsoft in realistic scenarios. And we're going to talk about things like how not to get your own ass shot if you're the good guy in a mass shooting situation taking out the shooter. You ever think of that? You become the target when you draw the gun. Lots of cool stuff coming up. Before we do that, I bring Frank on, though. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, even sometimes when I'm gone like right now. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is the Berkey Guy. You know what you get from the Berkey Guy? You get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. What a shock. And you'll find the Berkey Guy and Berkey Water Filtration Systems at www.directive21.com. That's directive21.com. And you can find his banner on our website as well, like all our sponsors. I use a Berkey myself. I think you should too. I think they're the most economical and simple solution to the water issue. Um, whether we're worried about water purification uh, in a disaster scenario where the water somehow becomes contaminated, or we're worried about just making everyday water safer and better tasting to drink. Either way, I think Berkey's the way to go. That's why I have one here in my office. And uh, I don't have one up on the uh, up in the bug out location because I'm drinking water from 700 feet below the surface, and it's some of the best quality water in the world. But if we ever have a problem with the well pump, we have a Berkey system. That's I think you should do the same thing. That's why I recommend the Berkey system all the time when people ask me what to do for water filtration. Next up today is Shelf Reliance. Notice I said shelf like a thing you put stuff on, not self like you yourself. That's because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions and long-term storage food with the Thrive brand of food storage products. I think there's an incredible variety at Thrive, more than I've seen with any other uh, brand of food, and the food tastes really good too. It's food that you could break a can open, 
and serve on any day, and your family would happily eat it. And that's the kind of thing you want to store for long term, and that's the th kind of stuff you want to do to eat what you store and store what you eat. And I'll tell you another thing, too. Their food storage racks allow you to do just that with the food that you buy from the supermarket on any given day. You bring a can home, you put it in the top, you pull one out of the bottom when you cook. Food always stays rotated. It's awesome, incredibly space-conscious, incredibly rugged and durable, can hold over a half ton of food. It is amazing amazing how awesome the Harvest series of food storage uh, uh, systems are, along with the consolidator systems and the other great stuff you'll find at shelfreliance.com. Next up, remember to check out the gear shop. Cool stuff there. Check out check out our Victor Knox flashlights. When those are gone, folks, they're gone. There's only so many of them left. Engraved uh, with the TSP logo and uh, absolutely beautiful quality workmanship, incredibly bright, a great tool you'd love to add to what you got going on. Check out our geocache coins. We've got some other cool stuff there as well. Check out the lanyards. Check out the little bottle openers that go on your keychain and become part of your EDC and help spread the message. Good stuff at the gear shop. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only for members. And since this day officially starts my vacation, even though we're not leaving until tomorrow... Um, you know what I'm going to do. If I go away, I leave you guys a, a sale. Uh, vacation uh, will be the uh, discount code. That Again, that is vacation, V-A-C-A-T-I-O-N, vacation. Uh, you can use that when you check out with PayPal, or you can use that when you pay by mail. Uh, this is not open to existing customers like the last time I did a big sale. I just can't do it while I'm away. It takes too much logistical work. So this one is for new members only. Um, it, and that's just the only way that I can possibly make it work this time. Uh, but I am running it the entire period of my vacation, so it will run for the next two weeks, $35 for your first year with discount code VACATION. I'll run it right up until Friday the uh, 24th, even though I'll be back by then, so the next two weeks. Uh, last but not least, remember we have a contest going on right now. Sponsored by Ready-Made Resources, one of you guys is going to win an AR-7 survival rifle. All you got to do is go to the website, pull up today's show or yesterday's show or tomorrow's show or any any show during this two-week period, and uh, you'll see a link, and that link will take you to uh, a page on the uh, Ready-Made Resources website, and uh, you fill out that form, and then you hook up there with uh, Bob over at Ready-Made Resources on Facebook after you do that, and uh, maybe you'll win an AR-7 survival rifle. Remember, if 2,500 of you guys do this, I get one too. So look, I, I went to Bob, I got this deal, I got a rifle for you guys, I'd like one too. So share this with other people. I know that technically everybody you bring in reduces your chance to win, but hey, come on, man, tit for tat, so to speak. Uh, I'd love to get one of these. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants with us again. Frank's been on the show before, and uh, he was a wealth of information. And as part of this big interview blitz, while I'm uh, getting some recreation after the big move and sticking my toes in the water in the sand, I uh, have Frank leading off this series. Uh, Frank, welcome back to the uh, Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Um it was a, it's been a while since we've had you on. Uh, you are a sponsor of the show, and uh, so you know I mention you guys every week with, in your sponsor segment. But for those that maybe didn't hear the first show, could you just maybe introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, who is Fortress Defense uh, Consultants, and uh, you know your basic uh, resume in uh, in two minutes or less. 
Okay. I've been a firearms instructor for about 15 years. I've been an affiliate instructor with a company called Defense Training International, which is run by John and Vicki Farnham. I'm also an NRA instructor, uh, certified in a whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, it was just about two years ago I decided to go into business for myself, finally training. And I assembled what we're calling a cadre of instructors. Uh, they're all independent contractors, and we put a company together that we customize training to any particular individual or group. Um, so we we have specialists in different types of uh, training. I have medical personnel on, on staff and people who do executive protection and all that type of thing. So when we get a call from a customer or a client and we are given a, a certain uh, outline of what they'd like to learn. I can assemble the proper instructors and everybody and put them together and get them a, a curriculum that fits their life. So that's very cool. So you guys uh, tailor the training to meet the students' requirements. That, that's that's really awesome. Hey, um, when I was chatting with you before we got started today, we were talking about some of the things we wanted to bring up this time a little bit different than your last interview. And one of the things you, you had mentioned to me was that there are certain considerations when someone is uh, purchasing a weapon for their household, what may be used by other family members in a certain situation, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, mostly uh, we have to, to start looking. We start situationally with the particular family or group, and we figure out what it is they're looking to do. Um, so we have to figure out if there's, you know, children who are old enough to operate firearms or that sort of thing, or if the parents want them involved. Uh, we then would start uh, figuring out what type of house they live in, what their backstop problems might be, what their concerns with other security means are. Do they have an alarm system, dogs, that sort of thing. And we start looking at the body type sizes and how much time they have to devote to training. And from that, we'll start to figure out what type of uh, weapon system that they would will work in their their life in their house. Uh, with that also is budget. A lot of times uh, we have families that you know they can't afford a, a gun for every member of the family, so they start thinking about maybe just one or two that will fit the needs of everyone. Interesting, and you know you mentioned something there, and I don't know if you're talking about uh, range where they can practice, or you're actually talking about in a home defense situation. You mentioned backstop. Um, that's one thing I've got a lot of questions on. People are concerned with over penetration, do you know wall penetration and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that? I'm very impressed with a lot of the work the guys at the website site, the Box of Truth, have done, and their study on on penetration through drywall and brick and all that sort of thing. And it's it's not exactly 100% scientific, but what they do there is very interesting and very telling. And there's a lot of myths out there about what will penetrate and what won't. And then there's also the other side of the spectrum where sometimes bullets seem to do what they want. There, there isn't any real way to predict uh, how what their effect is going to be just because of certain certain things that, that aren't taken into consideration. Like, uh, you know, you can go out and shoot a cinder block, but a cinder block under compression when it's got 20 other cinder blocks on top of it behaves differently. Uh, so generally with penetration in, in houses, I'm a little, it, we, we really have to look at each particular situation as it goes, and we have to understand that even if we're talking about penetrating walls, well, what happens if the bullet goes through a window? So there's, 
there's a lot lot with it, and I don't think there's any perfect answer to that question. Uh, generally, I'm I'm more worried about getting somebody, or not worried, but concerned about getting someone into a firearm they can operate and make hits with. I, I don't want them to miss in the first place is kind of how I approach it. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for we look at, you know, what's, what's what happens when we hit a wall. Uh, but even if we get full penetration through uh, the bad guy, so to speak, once we go through the bad guy, we've done a lot to reduce that, and we're going to get a very different um, story as far as wall penetration after that. Um, one of the things I also just, like when I first got into to, to looking at these things, it was my natural inclination that, Things like uh, revolvers uh, with uh, relatively low velocity rounds would be less likely to overpenetrate. But what I found, and what makes perfect sense, is higher velocity, more frangible projectiles tend to blow up. And a lot of these slow-moving, heavy slugs, they penetrate and keep going. So there's some counterintuitiveness. Also, um, when I was in uh, when I was in Iraq during the first Gulf War. Uh, while I wasn't involved in the direct combat, we kind of saw some of the aftermath, and we had actually saw where there was a uh, an Iraqi soldier that was hit with uh, an M16 round in his right buttock, and the round exited uh, up near the collarbone uh, of his left shoulder. So you're right. Sometimes bullets just do things that don't make any sense. I shot a... Uh, yeah, much like electricity. Exactly. I shot a psycho buck, an a, 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 a exotic deer, I guess you'd say, in South Texas, with a 7-millimeter magnum. It hit him point center on um, shoulder blade. Bullet turned 90 degrees up and broke the spine. It did so little internal damage. Had it not broke the spine, he probably would have been crippled and, uh, and lost. That doesn't make any sense either. So I like you know your willingness to state that there are sometimes you're just not – a perfect answer or a good explanation, and we have to do the best with what we have. Well, we try to do the correct uh, choice of our ammunition. I'm a big fan of Corbon DPX ammunition, which is a solid copper bullet, and it tends, when it hits uh, living tissue, to dispense its energy and stop inside the tissue at some point. Uh, we've shot a lot of people and a lot of animals with it now. It's a pretty proven round, um, but it's still there's still a possibility of a 10% overpenetration. Um, you know, no no bullet's going to have a guarantee that it's going to stop in, in what what you're shooting at. Absolutely. Uh, one of the other things we were talking about, I just did a show about a week ago on Airsoft. And you guys are actually using Airsoft in force-on-force training. And I was saying that I think it would be a really good idea for some firearms trainers to do that. And I find out you actually do it. So can you tell us a little about what you're what you're doing there? Sure. Uh, I, I listened to that show, and I was actually in full agreement with everything you were saying. Uh, we, we use it on a very regular basis. Uh, it's what I try to get my students into after we learn our basic marksmanship and basic fighting skills. I really want to push them into force-on-force force and start shooting against other human beings. The use of airsoft has become the most economical way to do things. We used to have some munitions. Well, we still have them, but they're not really available to the general public. Uh, as a police trainer, sometimes you, we can get a hold of this stuff. Um, I'm, I still have some issues with converting live guns over to use some munitions and the safety issues with all that kind of thing. I, I really am not a fan of using live firearms with any kind of dummy barrel or anything like that in them. There's just too much potential for confusion later on as we're leaving the range or coming to the range. Uh, so the airsoft has really presented a way for us to safely train and still do it within budget. 
And you guys are doing the more, like I was talking about in that show, doing the more practical force-on-force training. Like, I, I, And I don't ever, whenever I say this, I don't want to put the airsoft community down because I love those guys. I love what they do. And I'm probably going to get out and, uh, with a local group here and do a little bit of it myself later this year. But it's not the most practical training for the average American to get into a 18-man, you know, three-squad pseudo-military unit and engage the exact same thing not, in the not woods. Unless you're going to go into the middle. Military Correct. And do those types of maneuvers. Correct, yeah. but scenarios like you're in a in a crowded room and it's entered and somebody opens fire and other things like that, right? You could and, and oh, gain yeah. things like that and and actually learn from the experience. We run uh, depending on the facility we have to use. When we do it at our our base, our home base in Illinois, we have uh, the availability of using a, a shop warehouse facility without windows in it. So we can pull vehicles in, we can create parking garage uh, types of scenarios, we can set up tables and chairs, we can create restaurants, uh, schools, offices, do all that type of thing. Uh, we have a stairway to use, so that, that gives us some, uh, you know, parking garage stairway or stairway going up to your apartment, that sort of thing. We have an office we can use that creates other scenarios. The most important thing with all of it, though, with the difference that's going to be the training between just going out with that group and blasting away, is we have a briefing and a debriefing with each scenario. It's important that you have a referee and that you have uh, what I usually do is assign jobs to each role player, and, and that's the other side of this, is you have to have really good role players, and my instructors are. So when the scenario is done, we bring everybody in, and, you know, you go one by one. What did you learn? What did you see? And that's how the learning takes place with this. I guess it would be important for some of your role players to, in their particular role, even if they would know what to do, to play the role sometimes of somebody that's in the way and not knowing what to do because you're not going to be sitting down at your, your you know, church meeting oh, or life, McDonald's. Standards, right. So we have to have people that get in the way, people that freak out, people that have no clue sure. what to do. Because it would be great if the bad guys were always dumb enough to walk into a place where there's 15 people sitting down and they're all former Green Berets and they're all armed. That would be a perfect world, but that's not how things work out. And well, with this also, uh, my wife being one of our, our best role players, she uh, last time we were doing something for a police department, um, we were indoors working a scenario of multiple targets. And out of the sight of, you know, I was refereeing the, the scenario, and all of a sudden she just walked into the middle of it with dark glasses on and a cane and started being a blind person. It, it was just an off-the-cuff move that she did, and the officer kept yelling, go over there to her, and she kept saying, where's, where's there? And it was a perfect thing to throw him off of his rhythm of what he was doing at that time. And there was another ish time where she came into it uh, holding her flashlight and her camera, and she just stuck it right in his face and started acting like a news reporter, which can happen in real life, too. So we're, we're pushing uh, all of these things into the unexpected and trying to get everybody to think on their feet. Have you ever done anything with this scenario? This is one that's often intrigued me, to have one person in the group that is going to be the obvious attacker, another person in the group that is going to be someone that's aware of the attack uh, and is going to be the person making a response, but you'd have a third person that also sees themselves as a responder and doesn't really know about the first responder. So he yeah, has to differentiate the between I, the bad I, guy I, and the I good guy. I generally will throw an undercover police officer into every mix. That's great. So that nobody, you know, to, to try to ID each other. Yep. And I, I was telling you before we, we started the interview here, I'm actually writing an article right now about a Mumbai-style attack taking place in America, how we prepare for that. 
And that's one of the issues that our police and our concealed carry people have right now with something like that. When the attack happens, part of part of the problem here is identifying yourself to other good people. Exactly. So if you if you decide to stick your nose into this for whatever reason because you you you're just your morality has said I'm going to help protect innocent life here. What do you do when 911 shows up? You know, you're the one standing there with a gun in your hand. That that's not a good place to be, whether you're a policeman or not. I mean, if you're undercover or not even undercover, you're just off duty and you're out with your family and you decide to respond to this. Sure. You know, how do you identify yourself? And I think it's so critical because I've said this before and I've actually had some pushback from it, but I believe one of the primary reasons to carry a weapon and one of the primary reasons I do carry, in fact, is that I see it as my moral obligation that if I'm in a location like that and I have the opportunity to simply take cover or extract but I'm one of the people that's there armed, and I'm one of the good guys to help others. But on the other hand, one, I take that time to do that engagement if there's an undercover officer, and all he knows is shooting his start. I'm standing there holding a gun. I don't have a badge to whip out uh, from under my shirt. Even, even if you do, you might not see it, right? You're going to see because it. Because you're yeah. talking about millisecond response time. So what are some considerations for that? How do we deal with that? We don't have a good answer. There's a company right now that's making a uh, like a Miss America pageant type uh, sash that folds up inside a little baggie that says police on mm. it, and you can pull that out and quick throw it across. Maybe. I mean, who knows if you have sure. to do this? That's it's a good idea. Until but, three bad you know, guys is that going is that going to work for everybody? <laughs> Until um, three bad guy that bad guy terrorists get one in, uh, and and <laughs> exactly yeah now now they show up yeah on. it's it, they're there really isn't a good answer to this. Uh, I've, I've talked to so many police officers, and I've been, you know, taking my own informal poll over the past couple of months. Well, nobody has an answer. Correct. Uh, you know, these things are so chaotic. And when you look at Mumbai, where they're actually using explosives and they're starting fires and they're attacking in multiple locations at once, uh, my goodness, it's just absolute chaos. I, and I, I want to get into that in just a second, but I want to stick with this for a little bit on just the, the typical thing that we've seen happen. If we look at something recent uh, like the Gabrielle Giffords shooting um, and, and other things that have happened like that, where this guy came out and just started shooting people from point blank, blank range. Now, you've got law enforcement responding, you've got security responding. If there happened to be, and unfortunately there wasn't, but if there had happened to be an armed citizen there uh, with a sense of honor who had engaged that person as soon as he started shooting, it there, still... There was. Really? There was actually an armed citizen was the first one on scene, but he was he, he walked out of the store and the shooting happened so fast there was nothing he wow. did. Wow. He helped hold the guy down, but that was it. So the, an armed citizen was the first responder wow. to that. Um, but it just—it was too late. It happened very fast. And my, my 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 question though is that let's say there had been somebody there able to respond. As soon as he draws down and fires, there's no way for anybody else there to really know: is he intervening, or is he Correct. is he another gunman? Correct. And that's that's one of the things with verbal commands that I think start playing into this, where we're we're teaching our students, you know, to say, you know, police drop the weapon or or whatever the proper command is. And, and starting to identify yourself as the good guy, even just through your actions. Correct. Okay, we're not we're not pointing guns at people who don't deserve it. We're concerned with the area around us. After the 
you know, after you return fire and, and you put the one bad guy down, at that point you're going to start yelling, call 911 or Correct. whatever. And, and things like that are going to start to identify you more as somebody who's there to help, not Because hurt. bad guys don't generally shoot their partner and scream, call 911 and tell the other bad guy right. to get down first. And I think that's... And you start asking people if they're okay. Absolutely. You know, that, that's Absolutely. the next, are you okay? Are you all right? You know, you can start doing that type of thing and that, that's going to help. But it's not going to help the responding officers who are jumping out of beat cars with the sirens on and they've got their rifles out. And, of course, many would say, well, take your weapon and reholster it at that point. But you don't really know whether you've eliminated the we threat yet. So you have to make a judgment call we there. We do not know. You know. And that's all why, why we teach to scan and do 360 scans and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're, we're playing cards here that we don't know what we're going to be dealt. That, that's the issue with this. All we can do is try to train to the most effective way we can to make split-second decisions. It really is stress inoculation and being able to, to deal with things as they get thrown at you. So now that we've like really thrown a serious dose of reality at people here, let's go a little bit deeper. and Let's talk a little bit about what you've been observing and what's going on in Mumbai and what your concerns are for America with this. Well, my concern is that we're just not ready for it. I, I think as a society, we are not mentally or spiritually prepared for it. It's going to come as an incredible shock when this happens. And notice I said when. Uh, it may be another year. It might be 10 years. You know, who knows? But it, when it's happening everywhere around the world, I have to ask myself what makes me think it's so, I'm so special it's not going to happen in my neighborhood. And for those that aren't familiar, can you just kind of go into a little bit about what is going on in Mumbai right now? Well, Mumbai is over. Um, you know, that was the, the, the hotel in India and the restaurants and all the, the places that were attacked. Um, that happened, I'm trying to remember here the dates off my head. Uh, what we were looking at, it, I think it was like November 26th to 29th of 2008 is when this happened. Uh, there were 10 Pakistani uh, terrorists that um, came into Mumbai, India, with AK-47s and grenades and explosives and incendiaries and just started attacking different places all at the same time. And they were there for three days. The, the Indian Army and police responded to it, but they were just so terribly undertrained they didn't know how to deal with it. And these guys started setting fires, and it just turned into a real mess. I think, I'm trying to remember the actual number, there was something like 166 people, I believe, who were killed during that. Wow. But, you know, it couldn't possibly have happened that way because don't they have really strict gun control laws in India? Yeah, even for the police. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're they're uh, like, like most uh, police departments around the world, uh, the administrators are terribly afraid of guns, and they think the uh, less often their officers touch their guns and the less uh, exposure they have to them, the better off everyone is. So their, their police just didn't even know how to deal with it. And, and you know, you were talking about how like something like this can cascade, so you do see this as something we're eventually going to deal with here. I don't see how we couldn't. Uh, with our, our open border policy right now and... Uh, the, it seems like since 9-11, our, our entire government and our security has all gone towards the wrong wrong direction. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not an expert on these things, and I don't want to uh, cast dispersions on anybody's uh, policies, but I'm just not impressed so far. You know, uh, okay, so we take the story at face value, and there was guys with box cutters that crashed planes into buildings. Well, then we're, we're responding to that by increasing airport security. Well, what makes us think they're going to use planes again? Agreed. And it, what makes us and think they're going to use box cutters again? And 
How yeah, is and the they... airport security is ridiculous? We all know what a farce that is. So we're we're it seems like we're always playing catch up to the event rather than trying to predict the event and behaving accordingly. And I it just it, you know I, a little bit of a tangent here. It's hard for me to understand how um, naked body scanners on uh, on elderly ladies and groping small children is actually going to to help with, with this this stuff. And it, it seems like that this. The security is all against the American people instead of against the people that actually mean to do us harm. Not not that we can't have some homegrown terrorism. We've had it before. I'm sure we'll have it again. But sure. let's be honest. The largest threat comes from outside our borders, which we seem to uh, treat like a colander rather than a uh, you know anything that would actually a dam that would actually stop the inflow. So absolutely, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So I have to assume. And, and I have no proof of this, and I'm not telling your listeners I have some inside track on this. I don't. I'm just going from what I read and see that somebody's planning this somewhere. I, I'm just assuming that at this point, and I'm living my life accordingly. And I would I would recommend to your listeners that they get training, and not just training in, in, in firearms. Get get proper medical treat, treatment for gunshot wounds. Get... get uh, all that kind of training and also uh, just start living an aware life. Uh, be ready to, to move. Be ready to, you know, I, I can't tell you enough how often I, I have to tell my female students, let's, let's get some footwear on that we can run in. You know, if there's a fire in your building and you're working on the 30th floor of a skyscraper and you've got to walk down the stairs, do you have decent shoes? You know, just, just things like that. And I think a general awareness and a general uh change in attitude is what I would like to see the American public have. You actually have an old article I was chatting with you about um, on distractions and how distracted our society is and how that affects, affects uh, negatively situational awareness. Uh, what do you mean by that? If it, it all depends. It's regional. That's part of it. Um, if, you, if you live in New York City and you're used to all the noise and being two inches away from people on the sidewalk at all times, uh, you can only be so much aware. And if you're, if you've grown up in Iowa, you know, we call it the bubble, your, your little personal space bubble. In New York, it's much smaller than, say, if you grew up in Iowa. You know, if some, you start walking towards someone who's from Iowa and you get within five feet of them, they start looking like they're getting uncomfortable. And that's, they have a bigger awareness area around them. And as our society has turned into more of an electronic advertising society, and with the introduction of cell phones and iPods and everything else, we start thinking about all the times that we're distracted from real life as opposed to keeping our eyes open. Uh, one of the things that I put in that article was uh, when you go to fill up your car now, half the gas pumps have television screens at them where they're running advertisements and that sort of thing. Now, one of the worst places in the world to be distracted is while you're standing there next to your car You've probably got cash in your hand because you're getting ready to go in and pay. You've got your keys in your hand, and you're going to take your eyes off your surroundings at a gas station. I mean, and you've yeah. got your car door open. You're probably getting yeah. your wallet out. You're in a vulnerable position, and now you're watching a dancing clown or a dancing baby or whatever they're spinning around on the on the thing for you. And it is a classic place for people to be hit. It really is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we we look at uh, the iPod factor. Now those things are so convenient and everybody has them, they're always wearing them all the time. If you're on a city bus, you, you know, if anybody in your audience goes to a public gym of any type, you know, people will put those on to you know get the noise out of their head so they can get into their workout or whatever, but it totally creates a, a lack of situational awareness. You know, you're on the walking machine or you're lifting weights or whatever and you've got these earbuds in, you can't hear anything. 
you're not going to see anyone coming up behind you or whatever because you're just you're totally zoned out of reality. I've always been big on if I am using any type of a listening device in a, in a situation like that, the the one ear philosophy. So I'll have sure. one earbud in because I mean, there's, you want to use your time effectively. So I understand a guy that wants to listen to an audio book while he's while he's running on a treadmill, but. Or your show, yeah, or my show. Well, hopefully, there's a lot of people doing that. Absolutely. But if you are, to, you know, you got the volume peaked up, you have like noise canceling headphones on, and you're on there to where there is nothing but that sound. There could be major problems and major injuries before you even were aware. You could be one of the victims. Um, sure. One of the other things I wanted to point out that I think a lot of people maybe have this false sense of security with is, well, if I'm out at a place and something starts to go down, you know, I'll engage the threat. Um, not if you're the first one the guy shoots at. Absolutely, and I'm not sure that that's not my opposite philosophy anyway. I know one thing from all of the mass shootings and uh, violent events that we've seen. The people who chose to rant or run have lived. Correct. Those who, those who cower down and try to hide generally are the ones who get victimized. Um, and we all have to think about our morality here. This is all part of, of learning to do these things. Are there going to be situations that I'm going to stick my nose into it? I would have to admittedly say yes. But are there times when I'm going to sit there and say, is it more important for me to get home alive to the people I love and the people I have responsibilities to? We have to weigh all that. I think it's a constant thing that we have to think about. And even if you wanted to um, to respond, there's a time to... Uh to, to put some movement and some cover between you and the threat and then figure out how you're going to engage the threat. And, and sure, it, it, it's sure. all situational. It's all, it's all based on the individual situation, and there's no individual right answer. There might be a right answer to a situation, but we can't even figure out what that is until it happens, and then we generally can't even figure it out until after it's over. Uh, we look at, remember the, the, school, the school board uh, thing with the gunman in Florida? where the lady came up behind the guy and hit him with hit purse, him with right? Yeah. She had yeah. some courage, but that probably wasn't the right thing to do. Now, had she been a concealed carry holder and shot the guy in the back of the head with a um, you know, that might have been you know, a, a better way to handle things. But that's, you know, to think that the next time somebody walks into a place with a gun, he's going to first tell all the women to leave, and then he's going to sit around and, and run his mouth for 30 minutes before shooting starts, is foolhardy because we don't know what the next thing's going to be. We don't. And when someone comes in with any type of weapon and makes a threat, we have to take them at their word at that point. That, that's the way I, I would advise my clients and, and what I would do in my own life. If somebody has a weapon and they say, do this or else, they've already expressed that they have no respect for my life anymore. That It's that simple. And I'm going to proceed forward as as necessary with that. Expecting that they will do what they say that they will do, and they they exactly. might. I'm going to take them at their word. That's the only contact I've ever had with this person, and they just promised me they would kill me if I didn't behave in a certain way. So, uh, I'm going to take them at their word. They're willing to kill. And me. the only thing that you would expect them to break their word about is 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 uh, not even doing what they said they would do. In other words, if you if you go here, I I if you go if you don't go over there, I'm going to shoot you. They might shoot you once you get over there anyway. All yeah, all they've <laughs> proven to me at this point is that they're a criminal. Correct. So they're already committing a felony at this point. I have to take them at their word that they don't have any honor. <laughs> oh, it's that simple. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to reason with them. I mean, if I talk to them, it's simply as a distraction to try to, to try to implement my own plan. 
I wanted to you know, ask you the thing that we have to ask every firearms trainer we ever have on the show, uh, and that is, what do you carry? Because everybody always wants to know that. What do I carry? Um, it, it's going to depend day to day. I, I tend to test a lot of things because I get a lot of students who come to classes and they want to know your opinion on stuff. So I go from the uh, Miyamoto, Miyamoto Musashi school of thought that a true warrior has no favorite weapon. So we all have our favorites. I try to keep mine to myself because I don't want to set what, what's my favorite and what works in my life may not be what's right for a 110-pound, uh, 72-year-old grandmother. So I, every every weapon's different. But if you want to know, right now I have a Smith & Wesson M&P 9mm in a holster, and I have a... Uh, a Ruger uh, LCP 380 is a backup gun. That's that's what I have on right now. You know, you brought something up interesting there. The no warrior has a favorite. A real warrior has no favorite weapon. Um, you were talking about it in some other training that you guys are doing now, where basically you bring everything you've got. Your instructors bring everything they got, and students bring everything. It could be anything from a from a an, an SKS to a, a single uh, shot shotgun, and you put it out there, and you get every student and every instructor in there, and you go through them together, and everybody learns how to pick up any one of those weapons and get it running. Why are you guys yeah. doing that? I sold the drill. It's actually called Battlefield Pickup from John Farnham years ago, and we started implementing that in our classes. And no matter what class we have, whether it's a rifle or pistol class, we're going to set tables up and everybody's going to put their guns down and every other student's going to go through and shoot everyone else's guns. Part of the lesson there is to teach everybody that these guns are far more alike than they are different. They're, they're just There's so much on them that's the same. There's very little that's different and we can operate them all. We can make hits with them all, and the point of that is is that you may not have your favorite gun during your next gunfight, and the idea that you know you're, somebody's going to throw you the gun they have or you're going to pick one up off the floor and you're going to stare at it and you're going to say to yourself, well, I can't make any hits with this. This isn't my brand. Well, no, we're, <laughs> that's not what we're going to do. We're going to say, oh, I can operate this. It works just like my gun at home. And then that's what I really want out of that. Now, the class that you're talking about, we're actually taking it from a standpoint of active shooter or something of that effect where you walk into a situation where you just have to use the gun that's present, whether that's the gun you pick up off the other good guy who didn't live through the fight or the gun you pick up off one of the bad guys that's laying on the floor, or we have situations like the L.A. bank robbery from years ago where officers went to a local gun shop and the owner just started handing them rifles. Well, we've got to learn how these things work, and we don't get a choice right now. So I think it's very important that people start getting in their mind that it's a gun, I can make it run, and I'm going to learn as much as I can about every gun I can get my hands on because I may not have mine in my next fight. You know, and I completely agree with you on they're more similar than different. I guess I, I grew up in a household where guns were common, and we were taught about safety early. And, you know, I was shooting by the time uh, I was eight years old. I was shooting center fire rifles at that point and, and shotguns. So it, it's always been very intuitive to me. And I guess that can be a detriment when you're trying to train other people because you would expect, well, once I've shown you how one semi-automatic handgun works, you can kind of figure out the rest. But I guess it's not that simple for some folks. There's not. There's there's some things that you need to know about certain guns. Um, decockers are are one of the things that you know everybody could use a little lesson on. Uh, the 1911 system being you know a single action, double action, and the safety how that works and the cocked and locked and all that. Uh, rifles. Um, there's a lot of different controls and you know some 
charging handles are in different places and magazine releases. You know, obviously the the Rockin AK magazine versus the AR-15 magazine, which just you know pushes straight up and in. You know, things like that. The subtleties we want to learn all that. Fail- the clearances the on trigger, clearances on a failure as well would be different for cer- certain weapons. Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be a little bit different. Um, the, the the trigger and the sights, though, uh, they all kind of work. Correct. <laughs> and, and we need to know that. And a safety is generally somewhere near where your your, your firing hand is because that's a smart way to design a gun. And, there, generally. you know, generally there's a magazine release somewhere in the vicinity of the magazine well or on the magazine itself, depending on what we're talking about. So there's these commonalities that we need to make people familiar with. Right. And probably the, the biggest variations is going to be in shotguns. Yeah, if you look at the difference between the Mossberg and the the Remington, the safety, you know, one's a thumb safety, there's a Correct. safety. You know, the the bolt release is in a different place on those guns. And then when we start getting into things like the Benelli Super 90, which, you know, you can't have enough buttons on a gun, uh, <laughs> you know, probably the Spaz 12 being the worst you know, example of that. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so we gotta we got to figure out how all these things. I'm wondering where the USB port is on that gun. <laughs> you know, if there, if there was if there wasn't enough buttons, I'm sure somebody sells other things you can bolt onto it to make it even more complicated, if you'd like. What uh, so, I was gonna say, that's an interesting thought. What are your thoughts? I, I think some people tend to, especially in the AR platform, accessorize to the ridiculous. Uh, very much so. Most usually, when we do a rifle class, uh, by the end of the first day, there's a little pile of stuff that's been jettisoned off all the rifles that starts to build up. Uh, people eventually figure out that a lot of the stuff they need is just added weight. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of red dot sights. I, you know the aim points and the EOTechs and stuff. They really do improve your shooting, and they well they don't improve your shooting, but they make sight acquisition quicker. You know, you're, you can shoot faster with those, and they're good for people who have, you know, over 40-year-old eyesight. Um, so, you know, in that case, I'm going to say, yeah, put a red dot on it. It's fine. Uh, mounted light, yeah, that's probably a good idea, too. You know, we do a lot of a lot of problem-solving in low-light situations, and I'm probably, you know, good. Put a flashlight on it. But as soon as we, you know, decide, well, we've got a foot of rail here, so I need to fill it up, I think I'll put a waffle maker on it and a sock warmer <laughs> and uh, a recharger for my iPod and whatever else. You know, let's, <laughs> you know, we can probably do without a lot of that stuff. I, I completely agree. But I, I am big on the lights. And I remember I had one, and this guy was a cop, emailed me after a show where I talked about using tactical lights and uh, either mounted or, you know, a, a carryable light. And he said that in his training they were taught to just, you know, if you do that, basically give away your position. So when you when you enter a place where the, the you know, I think the assailant is, flip the lights on in the room, and that disorients them because you're prepared and they're not. And I was like, well, I hope there's a light switch on every wall then, and I hope you know where the light switch in the room that you've never been in before is, and I hope that your click doesn't give away your position as much as turning on the light gives away the bad guy's position. And, you know, I, I, it just, it, it's, I, I'm not to put the guy down or his department down or anything, uh, and I don't even remember where exactly it was from, but this was a law enforcement officer that was actually trained that this was a proper method of thinking. And my thought was, this has got wrong written all over it. There might be the situation oh, that's, that's, for it, but it is a default. It doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. No, that's your tax money at work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just every department's different, and I, I get around a lot of police departments that really take their training seriously, but they're not in the majority. We have to... You know, when you look at a department like near me, like Chicago, they have 
15 to 18,000 officers at any given time, it's a logistical nightmare just getting them qualified once a year. It's probably a logistical nightmare to get all of them a uniform. Sure. You know? uh, when you look at you look at New York City, it's thirty five to forty eight thousand officers at any given time. Uh, just getting them through qualification is about the best anybody can hope for. Let alone give them real room clearing training and all that. They leave that to SWAT. Sure. Um, with with the lights, one of the great things about it is with the LED technology and everything, we've been able to shrink them and and make them lighter. Uh, the the original first like generation of Surefire forearms that went on the AR-15 that added like two pounds to the gun. It was like putting a stabilizer on a compound bow when you had one of those things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we've we've been able to make a lot of the gear lighter, and it's everything's getting better. I mean, it's a great time to live if you want to buy guns and accessories. You know, everything's out there if you want it. Very cool. Um, what I kind of wanted to wrap up with is we, we have a couple of uh, listeners that have uh, yeah, contracted you to put together a class, and uh, I put out some stuff on the blog about that, I guess about a week ago for the last few seats that were available, but they put together a pretty interesting lineup, and I think it would give people a really good idea of what you mean when you say you can customize the training. You want to talk about what those guys are in for? Yeah, uh, they... They contracted us to do six days of training for them, and they actually wanted more, but uh, we can only do so much with their time off work and that sort of thing. So we started with a two-day uh, level one handgun class, and that takes you from not knowing the first thing about a handgun to moving, drawing, hitting targets, moving targets, all that sort of thing. Uh, we carried them into a two-day rifle course. Uh, same thing there. Uh, we're working on... Uh, Engaging targets from 100 meters down to point blank, uh, hostage situations, movement, all that type of thing, shooting positions, all the good stuff. We're going to throw a night shoot in with each of those classes. Then we're going to do a one-day uh, tactical medical class, which is not only treatment of gunshot wounds but neutralizing threats under fire. And then uh, I was able to uh, – there's a colleague of mine by the name of Hank Iverson who's got the uh, – he, he trains our Green Beret right now. He's a South African who lives here in America now. Uh, we're bringing him in to do a one-day uh, vehicle course where we're going to do team tactics and vehicle defense and that sort of thing. So we put that together as a six-day training package, and it's, it's proven to be very popular. That's awesome. That's, that's more weapons training than I got in basic in the Army. I'll tell you that right now. It really is. We, we like to think we do better, um, but it's, it, it's that type of thing we can do for people. And I've had a couple of your other listeners uh, contact me, and I've done a few things like just a basic firearm safety thing for, for some families who had young kids in the house and they just didn't know how to approach it. And I've also got a few uh, people that have contacted around, around the country who want me to do just like either a, a handgun or a rifle thing for them. So we're still setting a lot of that up. Awesome. And you guys, and we talked about this before when you're on, but I want to make sure people understand this. If you have, if you, like, let's say there's a group of people and they put together a, a sizable group, uh, but they can't get to you, but they're in Arkansas or California or Florida. Right group, right scenario, reasonable price, you guys will go to them. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it works out to be a little cheaper than going to gun site or front site or something like that because even with tuition in one of those places, you still have to work in your gas money and your hotel and all that sort of stuff. So once we get done with our expenses and all that, we can generally work in cheaper than going to one of those schools. And then we can pay attention to you 
for for what your group needs. You know, if you go to one of the other schools, they're going to give their basic curriculum of what they give to everyone else. And if we come to your retreat or whatever, we can help you set up firing positions and talk about, you know, defense around your place and, you know, kind of just customize it to your thing. That's where the consultant part of defense consultants comes in. It's not just okay. about training, uh, but how do you, how do you, uh, you know, fortify your your individual environment. I think there's a lot of folks out there that uh, might be interested in chatting with you about that. I do appreciate you being on the show again with us, Frank, and uh, uh, thank you for, uh, once again, bringing us a great deal of wisdom and another harsh dose of reality. I'm happy to do it, and I uh, wanted to correct, congratulate you on the move and the new house and all that. Everything looks great. I saw some of the pictures on the web. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a a long road to hoe, and now it's a big it's a big mess because all the stuff's here, uh, and it's not all put where it needs to go yet. But we're working on that, and uh, it's uh, it's really a blessing. And uh, maybe I'll have you come out, and we'll talk about some defensive positions around the bug out location at some point, and uh, eat some eat some steak, and after the guns get put up, have a beer or two. Well, if they're steak, I'm <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, Frank, thanks for being on the show again. And folks, remember, if you guys uh, want to uh, train with Frank, you can do that. You can get in touch with him on his website. You can find his banner, uh, like all of our sponsors, on the uh, survivalpodcast.com. I'll have direct links to some of his articles and his website in today's show notes. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Frank Sharp Jr., helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living